So, General Alexander, I'll turn the podium to you, and thank you again for being with us. In 2013, Keith Alexander was at the height of his career in military power. At that point, the four-star Army general was the longest-serving director of the NSA. He was also the first head of the U.S. Cybersecurity Command. You know, the most important thing that we can do is train our people. The best in the world. That's what the American people expect of our military and of our intelligence community. But this isn't a story about what American generals do at the height of their military careers. It's about what they do after. In the case of General Alexander, he runs a firm that worked closely with the Saudi government, even after the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. It's common knowledge in the United States that many retired military officials, particularly senior officers, go to work for defense contractors when they're retired. They call it a revolving door. You work at the Pentagon, you retire, then you have really good contacts with arms manufacturers and defense contractors, so you go to work for them. What we found is that there's sort of a new revolving door that's taken place over the last 10 years, where you have retired military officials going to work for foreign governments. Craig Whitlock is an investigative reporter for The Post. He spent the last two years uncovering this new revolving door from U.S. military service to serving foreign governments. You may be wondering if this is legal, but the U.S. military has actually approved a lot of this work. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh. It's Tuesday, October 18th. Today, the hundreds of retired U.S. military personnel who have taken jobs working for foreign governments, including some with terrible human rights records. Craig has been reporting for years on the role of money in the military and how that affects national security. And when President Trump was in office, something happened that caught Craig's attention and kick-started his investigation. You'll recall Michael Flynn, the retired Army general who served as Trump's first national security advisor. He got uh, into trouble with the FBI for a number of things for his dealings with Russia. Newly released documents show Flynn received more than $67,000 in fees and expenses. Elijah Cummings, the ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, believes Flynn may have broken U.S. and military law. But one side aspect of his case was that he also had failed to obtain clearance from the U.S. Army and the State Department before he made a trip to Moscow back in 2016 to attend a dinner with Vladimir Putin. President Trump's fired national security advisor, Michael Flynn, just a short time ago, cutting a deal at a plea agreement hearing at federal court in Washington, D.C., General Flynn pleading guilty to lying to the FBI, admitting he misled investigators about his interactions with the former Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak. When that became news back in 2017, 2018, uh, at the Post, we just wondered, well, this is something we didn't even realize. It hadn't occurred to most people that retired military personnel had to apply for permission before they could accept gifts or even travel expenses from foreign governments. So we were curious how common this was and who were people working for? Were there other people working for the Russians or the Chinese or what? So we put in some public records requests under the Freedom of Information Act with each of the armed forces 
uh, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, and the State Department. And long story short, it took us a long time to squeeze those records out of the government. We had to file two lawsuits under the Freedom of Information Act in federal court, and we finally compelled uh, the armed forces and the State Department to release a whole bunch of records, about 4,000 pages worth. And that's why it took so long to get our arms around it, because the government, frankly, had tried to keep this information from becoming public. Who are the people we're talking about? Are we talking about a handful of high-profile names, or are we talking about a couple dozen people? How, how many? Well, more than 500 since 2015. And those are ones who got permission, got approval to do this. There's probably an equal number who who didn't bother to get their paperwork stamped, didn't bother to get permission. This is a law that's not really enforced very strictly. So mm-hmm. one finding of our investigation was that more than half of the people who seek federal permission to work for foreign governments are going to work for one country, and that's the United Arab Emirates. That's one of the Persian Gulf sheikdoms that their whole economy really is based on contracting and outsourcing. To have that number of people, more than 280 since 2015, going to work for the Emirati government, they're working as advisors, as contractors, and really doing the same thing they did for the United States. They're helicopter mechanics. They're working on Patriot missile batteries. You know, they're they're teaching people how to fly certain aircraft, um, as well as high-ranking strategic advisors. So the best-known example of someone going to work for the United Arab Emirates was actually Marine General Jim Mattis, who's our former Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. I, James Norman Mattis, do solemnly swear. I, James Norman Mattis, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And we found out that he applied twice for foreign government employment with the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, that he had served as the head of all U.S. military operations in the Middle East, so he was very well acquainted with the Emirati leadership. We asked General Mattis, you know, how much did they pay you for this? He said he he did this as on an unpaid basis, but it's a little strange that you would have a such a high-ranking retired general work as a military advisor for a foreign government. And what's different in Mattis's case is that after he was working as an advisor for the United Arab Emirates, he comes back into U.S. government service as the Secretary of Defense. He becomes President Trump's uh, first Secretary of Defense. And this was something that never really was made public at the time, that Mattis had served as a military advisor. Again, he says unpaid, but still, this was a, a role he held for a foreign government. And then he comes back and he's in charge of our armed forces. Uh, so this was this was a twist and turn that we hadn't really expected, mm-hmm. but sort of opened our eyes to the extent this is going on overseas. Well, can you tell me a little bit, like, what are the implications exactly of having, you know, high-ranking military officials working for foreign governments and then in Mattis's case coming back to work for the U.S. government? You know, what is the – what is the what are the broad concerns of having people participate in this revolving door? So the United Arab Emirates, even though it's a very small country with only about a million of its own citizens, over the last 10 or 15 years, it's built up a pretty strong military force. It's probably the best equipped and most capable army in the Middle East of all the Arab countries, save for Israel, of course. 
So this is a country that's built up its military with an awful lot of American help, both at the strategic advice level, but also at the grunt level. You know, we have hundreds of people there working as contractors. And the way that's possibly problematic is the Emiratis have gone from just trying to defend their own territory to they become more aggressive. In Yemen, since 2015, the United Arab Emirates and the Saudis and other members of a a Middle Eastern coalition intervened in the Yemeni civil war, and tens of thousands of of civilians have been killed in that. It's been a terrible international crisis, a humanitarian crisis that uh, nobody's been able to resolve. This war has lingered on. Another example is the United Arab Emirates has gotten involved in the civil war in Libya. So here you have this small Gulf country becoming increasingly aggressive militarily in other conflicts in North Africa and the Middle East. And this is something that the U.S. Congress has been very critical of. You know, mm-hmm. Why are you getting involved in these wars? And yet at the same time, you have retired U.S. military personnel enabling this kind of policy, this kind of behavior on the part of the UAE. So that's certainly an unforeseen consequence of the U.S. government allowing its veterans to go work for foreign governments. I think at the beginning, it sounds good. It sounds non-problematic. These are people just looking for a second line of work once they retire. But, you know, the foreign policy implications, I think, U.S. government hasn't thought through very well. And that's certainly something we're hoping to highlight in our coverage. After the break, Craig tells us just how deep these outside advisors have gone into foreign militaries and what some of them have to say about the work they did. We'll be right back. You know, we've been talking about the United Arab Emirates, but another country that you discovered within this investigation that has a lot of ties with former military officials is Saudi Arabia. And that's a country that's got a very poor human rights record. Even President Biden hasn't shied away from calling that out. I made my view crystal clear. I said very straightforwardly, for an American president to be silent on an issue of human rights is this consistent with, inconsistent with who we are and who I am. I'll always stand up for our values. U.S. intelligence has pointed to the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's involvement in the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Did you talk to any former military officials who worked with the Saudi government? Like, what was their reasoning or justification for working with them? So in this case, the defense ministry in Saudi Arabia is headed by the crown prince, Prince Mohammed. So he's he's not only the de facto ruler of the country, he's also the head of the military. And starting in 2015, he started asking retired U.S. generals and admirals to come to him to help him transform the structure of the Saudi military to sort of modernize the command and control systems, because at that point, the Saudi military was sort of broken up into different fiefdoms. Mm-hmm. So I think... Crown Prince Mohammed was looking for American help to help him make make his armed forces more effective, if that makes sense. But in light of all of these things that have come out about that, what, what did the people who worked with the Saudi government tell you? Why did they feel that it didn't, you know, kind of misalign with U.S. interests, if you will? So one person I had a long interview with was Marine General 
James Jones. And General Jones had been President Obama's national security advisor at the White House for two years. He was the NATO Supreme Allied Commander when he was on active duty, and he was the Commandant of the Marine Corps, which means he was the top general in the Marine Corps. So this is someone who's had a long and distinguished record in uniform. And yet now he's in his in his 70s and he heads up a couple of consulting firms. And that was a question I had for him. He, you know, he explained that Prince Mohammed had asked him to come over to help him, you know, come up with advice and recommendations for revamping the Saudi military. But what we found is that his companies actually got more contracts and had sent more people to Saudi Arabia after Khashoggi's death than before. And his explanation for that was that he was worried that the Saudis might drift away from the American orbit, that it was very important to maintain the strategic relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, that he was worried that if the United States pulled out its involvement at his level or at the diplomatic level or the military level, that the Saudis might gravitate toward China and Russia. And this is certainly something that's come up quite a bit in public debate. You know, is it worthwhile to maintain this long-standing strategic relationship with Saudi Arabia, or does it need to be readdressed in light of their pretty awful human rights record mm-hmm. and, frankly, their intervention in Yemen, which has been a terrible civilian disaster? What does the U.S. government do in that kind of a situation? Are there limitations on when and how they can go about working with these governments? Because in one sense, that almost sounds like General Jones was conducting his own version of foreign policy separate from the White House. General Jones made it clear that if the U.S. government had advised him to get out, they would have. I think he wasn't trying to operate as some kind of rogue foreign policy person. But legally, there's not really much the U.S. government can do. I mean, once these retired military officers have gotten permission up front from the military or from the State Department, you know, that's really the only break they have on their involvement with foreign governments. And even then, it's a pretty toothless law. The only thing the military can do if you go work for a foreign government without approval is they can dock your your military pension. You know, there's no jail time. It's not a criminal penalty. You just might get fined. And in our reporting, we found that the U.S. military has only fined fewer than five people over probably 20 years for violating this law. So it's not something that's enforced very much. Are there other people that of that stature that the public might know, military officials who the public might have heard of who are also participating in this? Like, what are some of the more well-known names that you found in this investigation? So uh, there's an Army general, retired now, four-star, named Keith Alexander. Mm. And his claim to fame was that he was the head of the National Security Agency, right? So this was somebody who's at the very top of the intelligence and military world in the United States. He's now retired, but General Alexander had put in for permission to go advise and consult for the Saudi government. And in particular, his company is is a consulting firm called IronNet Security, and they do consulting on cybersecurity and cyber warfare and stuff like that. But his job in Saudi Arabia was his company was going to advise a new institution in Saudi Arabia called, get this, the the Crown Prince Mohammed College of Cybersecurity. Wow. So this was a, a college that was set up in the name of the Crown Prince to train Saudis to be cyber warriors. The timing of this was really interesting that the Saudi government announced that it had hired 
General Alexander's consulting firm in July of 2018, uh, three months before Jamal Khashoggi is killed. So General Alexander's application with the army and the State Department to work with the Saudis is pending while Jamal Khashoggi was killed. And what we found is that uh, two months afterward, the State Department gave approval for General Alexander to work with Crown Prince Mohammed College of Cybersecurity. The other interesting aspect of this is a key figure in the, the cybersecurity college was an aide of the Crown Prince's name, uh, Saad Al-Qahtani. And Al-Qahtani was sort of his right-hand man in a lot of ways, the, the, the prince's hatchet man. And he was a guy literally who was assigned to squelch dissent in the kingdom and track down critics of the crown prince overseas. And he was involved in orchestrating the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, according to uh, U.S. intelligence. So to give you a sense of the timing on this, shortly after Khashoggi's murder, the U.S. Treasury issued sanctions on the crown prince's aide, this guy Al-Qahtani. And yet at the same time, the State Department gives approval for General Alexander to be an advisor to a, a college of cybersecurity in Saudi Arabia that's essentially run by this same guy. So you can see this disconnect here. And I don't have a good answer for why they're doing it. Is it just that they're they're stamping paperwork and acting reflexively? Or is is somebody really stepping back at senior levels in the government and sort of weighing the consequences of this for U.S. foreign policy. And it certainly seems like no one is really paying attention to the foreign policy implications of this. Did you ever reach out to Alexander? What was his response to any of this? We did request an interview with General Alexander. He declined, but a spokeswoman for his company uh, did respond. And she noted that General Alexander's company stopped working in Saudi Arabia in 2020. So two years after Khashoggi's death, uh, she also said that General Alexander himself did not personally work on this consulting contract and that he did not uh, help the Saudi College of Cybersecurity. But, of course, his company did. And Alexander's the the founder, CEO and chairman of the company. So certainly he's benefiting financially from the contract with the Saudis. Well, let's talk about money. I mean, how much are we talking in terms of payments towards these retired officials? Is it comparable to their military salary or is it way more? We had to fight a two-year court battle over this. And the military in particular said it's not in the public's interest to know how much people like General Mattis or General Jones or General Alexander are earning. And what we did find out is sort of bizarrely, the armed forces did release documents on how lower ranking people, how much money they're making. So depending on the job and depending on the country, by and large, the pay is better than what they received when they were in uniform in the United States. For instance, there are a number of retired colonels and uh, uh, army colonels, marine colonels, navy captains who are working for General Jones's companies in Saudi Arabia. And a lot of them get paid anywhere from $250,000 to $350,000 a year. Uh, that's a lot higher than that they earned in the U.S. military. And again, these are people who are colonels and captains, not generals and admirals. I think it's a safe bet that the generals and admirals are earning much more. And do they always have these positions as outside advisors or strategic advisors? Or do, are there examples of people who got much more enmeshed in foreign militaries? 
So we found a few cases of retired Navy SEALs, right? You know, special operators who were working uh, as either special operations advisors or in some cases, you know, firing range instructors or people who were, you know, really, uh, you know, hands-on instructors with special operations forces in other countries. They're not in uniform, but they're teaching them how to be special operations forces. And in a few cases, yeah, the, the Navy SEALs are making two, three hundred thousand dollars working for uh, the Saudis or the United Arab Emirates for their militaries, which again is far more than they made when they were in uniform in the United States. And I guess to help me kind of understand some of the differences in this kind of work, the U.S. military will go and send people to teach different militaries under U.S. policy as an umbrella. But these people are able to go and make significantly more money teaching militaries. And also, they're not necessarily doing it with full government approval, more government knowledge. That's exactly right. And that's a question. Are they doing the same thing? What what are they doing extra? And 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 who's benefiting how from this kind of arrangement? It's blurring a lot of lines in terms of duties and responsibilities and who has allegiance to whom in these kind of situations, which is the public really is unaware. What is the impact or implications of having this amount of private money working within the culture of the military and the Pentagon? This gets at a bigger issue of people who serve in the U.S. military. When they're on active duty, when they're serving their country, they're certainly not getting rich. These are public servants. They're they're making a lot of sacrifices to serve their country economically. You know, their families go through a lot. They put their lives on the line, obviously. So I do think that once they retire and they're no longer obligated to serve the United States, there's an understandable desire in their part to make some money to take care of their families and become comfortable in retirement. Um, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I think the question is how you do it. Certainly, this is something that's always kind of happened uh, behind closed doors that hasn't really been a light shine on it before. And that's why we spend as much time as we did trying to get to the bottom of it. Well, Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You bet. Thanks for your interest. Craig Whitlock is an investigative reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Alana Gordon. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was edited by Maggie Penman. It was mixed by Rennie Svernofsky and Sean Carter. Thank you to Nate Jones, David Fallis, Sarah Childress, and Wendy Gallietta. I'm Arjun Singh. Elahe Izadi will be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Listener.